0: Welcome to the Animation Happy
1: Hour, a podcast where we talk about breaking into
2: the animation industry over a couple of drinks. All opinions and views expressed in this podcast are solely our own and are not representative of the companies for whom we work. My name is Ben.
0: My name is Katie.
2: My name is Garrett. And we are all feature film animators currently working at Disney. So today we are sipping on some Maya Mules. Yeah! My very own Garrett himself, which is very much like a Moscow mule, but. We're animated. It has a
0: little <laughs> dose of Maya there.
2: That's right. <laughs> it's a little graphic. glitchy here and there. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: right. <laughs> this is my favorite trick, I have to
2: say. Oh, yeah? yeah. I like it? Oh, yeah, oh, oh I, man, I, I, Critique Rita. I, I, <laughs> I think
0: the name works a little better. <laughs> whoa,
2: whoa, 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 Kate. whoa. Shots
1: fired. Shots. Shots are fired.
0: Well, thank you, Gary.
1: <laughs> of course. So for this episode, we are talking all about money. So we're going to be kind of talking about how much people in animation make, as well as kind of tips on how to be resourceful in the industry. There's a lot to this topic, so we're sort of breaking it down by questions we've been given. Um, We asked recently on Instagram a lot of, uh, you know, what are your money questions that you have about the industry? And so we sort of, we had a lot of similar questions. So we grouped Mm -hmm. it and sort of, uh, how many questions do we have here? Is it...
0: Well, we love top 10 formats, so we have conveniently organized the questions into a top 10 structure. Beautiful. So after our top 10 questions, we also have a special Money 101 section, which will feature after the outro, which will cover kind of more of the basics of budgeting and credit cards and that sort of very nitty-gritty money stuff, which isn't the most fun to talk about per se. So we wanted to... you guys the option of skipping it um so you'll see it at the end i highly recommend yeah we all highly recommend you give it a listen it'll cover things that i strongly think everyone should know so that's kind of my pitch for you guys to just keep listening and you'll hopefully learn something it might be a little boring but it could really pay off, no pun intended, (laughs) (laughs) uh, down the line. It's sort
1: of Katie's Corner or the lowdown. I stole that joke from Ben, by the way.
0: Okay, no joke. That is our family Christmas newsletter is the lowdown that my dad has been doing for like 40 years. And it's usually about
2: money, right? Doesn't he say so? Oh, Okay. (laughs) So before we get into this, we first want to give a little disclaimer and say we are definitely not financial experts here. We are (laughs) just regular joes try and you know
0: make it in the world (laughs)
2: exactly exactly but that being said um this is an area that is of you know the utmost importance to us and you know we've done our research here and there and our you know try to abide by best practices so obviously take everything we say with a grain of salt but we're going to try to give the best advice we can you know from our own experiences and people we've talked to and again just wanted to get that out there that yeah (laughs) we yeah. <laughs> we're not pros here we're trying to be pros. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think it's also worthwhile to acknowledge that Money is a very taboo and sensitive topic for people. Like Typically, it's not something that we talk about. Um, But I think we all kind of agree that knowledge and transparency is power. And hopefully, this episode and the information we give will empower all of you to make smarter financial decisions and, to the best of your ability, avoid any money-related stress. So,
2: I guess we should just jump right into it now. Mm -hmm. That's enough caveats and everything. (laughs) (laughs) So, number one, we're going (laughs) to get it started with a very controversial one right away. (laughs) Is the cost of education worth it for you? Is it, Ben? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'd say it's case by case, Karen. (laughs) That's... So in summary, that is our answer, right? <laughs> we're, <laughs> actually, we're, we're going to, uh, first we wanted to say one of our next episodes is going to be kind of brick and mortar versus online schools. And, topic, and yeah. that will actually have a lot of overlap with this because money is a big factor in in that decision because there yeah. is a big discrepancy in the uh, cost of those two things. Um, so look forward to that one, but we're also going to give some <laughs> valuable thoughts in this mm-hmm. one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a very case by case question. It very much depends on your personal financial situation, what it is that you want to do in the industry. Like, I think you should kind of ask yourself what are sort of the salary expectations for the job that you are hopefully going to pursue and achieve someday versus the amount of debt that you might be taking on to go to school or to uh, go or sign up for online classes and. That's that kind of thing. Um, And you just have to kind of start weighing those questions of how much risk am I willing to take on, and certainly, I, I mean, I can speak honestly, like I'm very privileged. I came from a background where my parents were doctors and they were willing to pay for school. So the question's easy for me. Like, yes, I getting additional education was worth it for me because, uh, frankly, I didn't have to pay for it, which sometimes <laughs> is embarrassing to say, but I'm very fortunate. And hopefully this is part of the reason I'm doing the podcast, actually, is I want to pay it forward <laughs> as best I can and try to uh, equal the playing field. Um, so yeah, it's super, super case by case.
2: So piggybacking off of Katie's privilege over there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've also been incredibly privileged, but I was in a position where it made most sense for me to take out student loans for when I went to grad school at SCAD. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in the future. But uh, to cut to the chase, I will say for me, it was definitely worth it. Uh, aside from the fact that I met my lovely wife at school. Um, <laughs> so I can put a price on love, li- literally. <laughs> um, but um, also, I was originally in graphic design and had a relatively much lower earning potential than I do now as an animator in Los Angeles. Um, so I would say, yes, for me, it was worth it.
0: Yeah. I would just reiterate that this is a super case by case question. Really quickly, just wanted to give the example that it is absolutely possible that you might attend a school with a really big name and a lot of prestige that doesn't have a great animation program. So it is possible that you could spend a ton of money and not get a great animation <laughs> education experience. So in that case, maybe it wouldn't be worth it. Um, so it's just something that we wanted to acknowledge is we for all three of us, Yes, it was worth it, but there are definitely situations out there where it might not be.
2: So now we're going to go to question two, and this is Do you have advice on paying off student loans? That is a very good question. And it actually, we're actually gonna take a little step back and talk about the decision to take out loans in the first place, and then kind of everything that goes with that, you know, um, things to consider before taking them out. And then once you do kind of best practices that go along with that. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I'm going to shamelessly steal from Nerd Wallet that website right now, I'm going to kind of go over, they had like these top seven tips for you to consider uh, before taking out student loans. And I thought they were just so great and applicable yeah. to any situation, regardless of whether you're studying to be a lawyer or an animator or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say definitely check out that website. But I'm going to go over some quick things here. And uh, like I said, it's going to be quick. So I still absolutely encourage everyone to, if you're considering taking out loans, really take the time to think about it. Do your research on what what your earning potential might be after you get the degree you want and uh, you know, it's a big decision. It is mm-hmm. alarmingly easy to take out enormous amounts of money when you're <laughs> 18 years old or 19 right. years old. And that is something that uh I'll talk about in the future can will follow you throughout the rest of your life, you know, or or for a couple of years after before it, you know, you're able to pay it off. So Enough of that. I'm going to get into the quick (laughs) tips. (laughs) So number one, there's basically two big subcategories of loans, and it's uh, federal and private loans. And generally, you want to go for federal loans before you apply for private loans. And that's because with a federal loan, there are things like loan forgiveness uh, that you shouldn't necessarily count on. But um, also, they're guaranteed they won't sell your debt to a private collector or anything like that. There's things there are options available to you, like immediately after you graduate, you can do kind of income based payments. And basically, just with a federal loan, it's much safer. It's it's, The way to go. And then
0: usually fixed interest rates too, right? Yes. That's a huge
2: one as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. We'll just talk about that right now. With a private loan, something to look out for is that interest rates can be variable, meaning you might take out the loan and they'll say like in big print on their advertisement, 2% interest, but then it's not fixed. So it might go up to, you know, much higher percentage. And, Mm -hmm. you know, over the course of years, that can mean a lot of money that you owe back. Um, and then very quickly, um, with federal loans there are again two kind of categories within that there's subsidized and unsubsidized loans and a subsidized loan uh is a little ultimately a little more attractive for you if if you have the option because it uh basically while you're in school, the loan will not accrue interest. Whereas with an unsubsidized loan, uh, it will start accruing interest immediately. And again, over the long run, that can mean uh, thousands of dollars. Um, and later I'm going to get into a very specific example of, um, you know, if you were to take out X amount of money, it would mean you owe this much at the end. Um, so that is super high level. The difference between kind of (laughs) the two loans So, number two for the quick facts about student loans is borrow only what you need and can reasonably repay. And this goes, again, back to do your research up front and know kind of how much money you can reasonably expect to make right after school and try to borrow an amount that kind of makes sense for that. Um, We certainly have heard horror stories of Some of our buddies who they graduate from school and they have over a hundred thousand dollars, you know, student loans and then are working a part time job, you know, and realistically you're just, you're never going to pay that back on a salary like that. And you might have to really sacrifice your quality of life to be able to make monthly payments. Um, and we don't say that certainly to scare anyone, but just to kind of uh, convey the, seriousness of of what it means for your quality of life when you have um, outstanding student loans number three is uh, i kind of touched on this already but uh, that you will pay fees and interest on your loan so let's say you take out fifty thousand dollars you are not going to pay back $50,000. You're probably going to pay back more something like $70,000 by the time you're done with it. Um, and obviously, this is all varies a lot depending on how fast you're able to pay something back, whether you're on like a 20-year loan or 10-year or whatever or or faster. Um, but yeah, it might sound obvious, but you owe more than what you borrow. I know that.
0: And the interest is calculated annually, correct, but billed monthly. So the... Um, if you have like a 4% interest rate, you're basically looking at the amount you owe and then multiplying that by like 0.04 and that's what it would grow at, right? Or I or, i don't know if I'm explaining this very well.
2: <laughs> no, no, it's But cool. basically
0: it's, the interest isn't gonna be growing monthly or anything like that. It's growing annually. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah.
2: So a very real world example, we'll say if you took out, let's say you had $30,000 worth of student loans and the annual percentage um, of the interest on those loans was 6% and you paid it off over 10 years, that means your monthly payment would be in the range of $333. And upon finally paying off your loans, you would have paid just under $10,000 worth of interest. So when you're taking out $30,000, you're actually paying back about $40,000. So it's like 10% of the entire base of the
1: loan is what yeah. you're paying in interest yeah. which is For pretty sure.
0: crazy. And we've certainly seen sort of horror stories too where people are paying their student loans off pretty slowly and they're just making the minimum payments and they've paid off an equal amount to the amount to the original sum that they took out but they still have tons of money left to pay.
2: Yeah, it's insane yeah. when you hear those. It's like I I took out $50,000 but you know could only make very small payments so 25 years later, they've paid back $55,000, but still have like $45,000 yeah, worth of loans as of the interest. Yeah, and it's because they just can't get ahead of the interest. Um, number after that uplifting, <laughs> um, number four is after you agree to the loan, your school actually handles the rest. Um, so, um, the school and the the federal loan or private loan kind of handle the, all the payment and stuff. So you don't just get like dumped $70,000 into your account and then pay it off. It'll, it'll work out quarterly or by semester. Mm-hmm. So however, and then any remaining money from your loan, let's say like it cost you uh, $5,000 to be in school this quarter, but you actually got a loan for $7,000. That means 5,000 will go to the school and then you'll get like 2000 in your bank account. And going off of that, number five is that you can only use loan money for certain things. Now, this is mm-hmm. kind of a almost an ongoing joke sometimes with people who take out a lot of student loans because you hear stories of people buying a car with their student loans or going on a vacation or something like that. But that money really only is meant to pay for school and cost of living. And obviously, cost of living can be kind of a gray area depending on how large you're living but um mm-hmm. yeah so but technically it should only be for those things so try to handle it as responsibly as possible and know that ultimately you're going to owe everything back and more at the end yeah it's probably better to use less of that money
1: in general right because then definitely
2: you're ultimately paying way more
1: with interest after
2: absolutely yeah. And then finally, one of the last things is uh, find out who your servicer is and when the payments begin. And this, this kind of goes along with my original point of just to do, your, do as much research as possible and know that, for example, like exactly when you have to start paying back your loans and what those are going to look like. And there are a lot of nice calculators online and stuff for you, to help you with this. Uh, but for example, with a federal student loan, you don't technically have to start paying it back until six months after graduation, and it's just to allow yourself some time to find a job and start making money and get settled. Uh, but again, during those six months, interest is still, still accruing, so it's in your best interest to start Ooh. paying it back. Hey, hey, Just <laughs> 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 start back. that just happened organically, amazing, <laughs> but um, to start paying those back as soon as possible—that's obviously best. Um, so yeah, again, those are some super quick tips. And again, like I said, definitely do your own research, do a lot of it. It's a very serious thing. I know it's kind of like this ongoing joke and there's kind of this, I don't know the exact word for it, but you know, when everyone else around you is taking out large amounts of student loans and it's kind of this, you know, accepted joke that like, Oh yeah, we'll be paying this off forever it's easy to get lulled into this false sense of security that it's okay. But then when you get out and you're like, Oh crap, you know, I'm living in LA. (laughs) Yeah. Living in LA and my rent is $2,000 a month and I own, I owe $500 a month on student loans. Having $2,500 a month liability right out of school is hefty, you know? So, and it might affect what kind of jobs you can take and, you know, and, and, whether you'll be able to move out of your parents' house and mm-hmm. all that stuff. It has very real-world consequences. So, again, just do your research. It's its not as scary as it seems if you just you know look up this stuff. There's a lot of great resources online. Like I said, Nerd Wallet is a good one. And honestly, if you just Google you know, student loans best practices, you'll probably mm-hmm. find uh, all kinds of great stuff.
0: I think a really big question, which Ben and I have actually explored in the past – Is the question of should you refinance your loans, and you might even be getting mail from these companies saying, "Hey, like come to us and we'll give you a lower interest rate," and um, and it sounds great. And is there a catch at all? Is it too good to be true? Um, And this again is a very case by case. Answer. Um, Generally, the catch is that these companies that are offering a lower interest rate, it's true that they will offer you a lower interest rate, but they will not, usually in most cases, they won't allow you to pay the loan off faster. So they will lock you into an interest rate over a specific period of time, which guarantees them a little bit more money than if you were all of a sudden you had more money or getting paid better and could pay off your loans faster. So for Ben and me as a couple, we actually decided that refinancing our loans wasn't the best scenario for us because we were paying off the loans at a pretty high rate, um, definitely faster than the minimum. Um, But if you're someone who can't pay the loans off faster than the minimum, maybe it really would make sense to refinance your loans and look for a different interest rate. And again, really do your research. Watch out for companies that might be tricking you into refinancing your loans with a variable interest rate. That's a really big red flag. You do not want to get lulled into a situation where companies can change up the interest rate or where they can sell your debt or that anything like that. But yeah, there are some good companies that you can refinance with where it might make the most financial sense. So again, another case of doing the research. One other thing that I wanted to mention when it comes to paying off student loan debt or even credit card debt or any debt that you might have is something that I've read a lot about and heard a lot about in financial podcasts about the snowball versus avalanche strategy of paying off your loans. And generally what this strategy is looking at is Um, sort of (laughs) weighing the very practical and mathematical side of just paying off the loans with the highest interest first versus the psychological benefits of paying off one of your debts entirely. Mm -hmm. So typically this is kind of considering like, okay, I have multiple loans and how am I going to pay this off as quickly as possible? The avalanche strategy is that you are specifically targeting the highest interest debt first. And mathematically, this is the best way to do it because you're trying to get rid of the interest as best as you can. But psychologically, you might prefer the snowball strategy, which is that you target the smallest sum Mm. debt first. And the psychological benefit of this is that you get rid of one of your debts that you don't have to worry about. And some people find this helpful because you're just kind of erasing a debt and it might give you momentum to end sort of. Empowerment to right. then tackle the rest of your debts. So, again, it's a very case by case thing. It's up to you what you think will work for you, but something to think about, food for thought.
1: So, number three, this is a question we get a lot about is it worth it to buy the latest, you know, little gadget, gizmo, tablet, iPad? You know, what kind of is worth spending money on? Um, and it can be really tempting. You know, you see a lot of advertisements for the latest, you know, Cintiq model or the latest, mm-hmm. you know, iPad or iPhone. And when we're talking about, you know, loans, like we just went over and, and how much money this industry can cost to even get into, it's worth kind of discussing, you know, what's worth purchasing and what's maybe worth holding off on. <laughs> um, as I mean, it might, be, it might be kind of silly and obvious, but one of the things we talk about that we think is definitely worth it, um, for us is definitely having some form of cloud backup, I think is useful, you know, when we're working with, uh, digital content and, uh, you know, you're saying you're in class or you're having a freelance job and you, you know, you want to rely on the fact that you're, data is secure. So I use Backblaze. We are not sponsored by Backblaze, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like something like 50 or $60 for the year. And it backs up your entire hard drive. If you ever have an issue with um, any of your storage, it will, uh, you'll just have a backup of it. So it's super, super useful. I mean, I've certainly been in a case where my hard drive blew up on me and I like, you know, not blew oh, up, man. but it went out. <laughs> <and> <laughs> it <laughs> pooped out. It pooped out. (laughs) So I don't know. Do you guys agree that cloud storage is a good way to go? Yeah, for sure. What other things do you think might be worth it to spend some money on?
0: Um, I guess I would say it is worth it to invest in your computer, especially Definitely. if yeah. you're going to be an animator or anything that's going to require a lot of computing power, like effects or something. Cause I do think it's extremely valuable to have your own personal computer where you can put in those 10,000 hours at home. Right. Um, or working from home just to get more experience, and you're not limited to having to go to the school lab or something like that Um, certainly like obviously again this is a place where we acknowledge privilege and it's helpful to have money to be able to buy a computer and if you can't then yes you can definitely still make do with other resources but I think if you are debating how to spend some extra money you have I think a computer is a very valuable place to direct that money.
1: Yes. Um, Maybe it's worth talking about some things that we would suggest potentially holding off on purchasing. Um, One thing that uh, we wanted to talk about with regards to this is maybe a Cintiq. Cintiq, that's a big one. Like everyone says, Mm -hmm. is it worth getting a Cintiq for my own personal use? And, you know, I I don't know. What do you guys think? I would say it's a Cintiq is very, very expensive to Mm -hmm. to have.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it might be different if you're specifically a 2D animator, but, you know, definitely in the 3D world, um, it's great to have. But again, one of those things you don't necessarily absolutely need. Mm -hmm. Um, I know, I think when I worked at PSYOP, we didn't have any Cintiqs. Um, It was just, yeah, if you specifically requested one, there might be one or two in the building. Um, Was it a
1: tablet that you could use? Yes, it was
2: like one of those little Intuos ones where it wasn't Mm -hmm. the... uh, Yeah, so I guess it wasn't an actual Cintiq. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is probably a case of like the tools don't make the artist. It's the artist putting the tools to work. So um, you can probably get by with... Maybe you can even find like an old model and buy something used or maybe there's a different product. Like I know... Um like Microsoft makes a lot of cool tablet/ slash computer things and um in this case maybe if you're if you are a strong 2D artist, maybe an iPad could even make more sense because there are pretty nice programs on the iPad. Um, not that that's cheap but again, yeah. you might be able to find an older model or something like that.
1: You don't um, need the latest ingredients yeah. necessarily yeah. of whatever it is you buy It's also something that came up in school often was, you know, should you have a personal website and or just should you have social media? And I I would, you know, again, it's case by case, but I feel like you can probably get by with a Vimeo account, social media. There's some free uh, website makers that you can or website hosts, like you don't necessarily need to pay $12 a month for a Squarespace account to Mm-hmm. You know, showcase your work. I don't think that's going to make that much of a difference.
2: Ultimately, it's just if you're able to get your work in front of recruiters and stuff, that's good enough. So yeah, don't feel self conscious if you know that's one area where you want to save a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, we'll have more kind of tips on this on the
1: in the show notes. We have some other stuff here, like maybe you know, hold off on the latest iPhone. Some of this stuff might be <laughs> kind of more obvious, but we'll definitely Mm -hmm. list that more.
0: Yeah, and this actually is transitioning really well into our number four question, which is, how did you save money while you were in school? Mm. Can you guys think back to those days and remember anything that you did to save money?
1: Yeah, so one thing we wrote down here, which I think is important to recognize, is that the internet is such a great resource especially now and i know people say this all the time but there's so much content on the internet um please check out our anim resources page or natalie nuragatz has has a similar yeah. thing for i think is it it might just be story for storyboard artists but just there's so much content out there that you can uh look to and um honestly i probably could have benefited with this more while i was in school um mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's so much stuff out there that is free. It's kind of the challenge is wading through what is good and what is useful. I'm trying to think of specific things for animators that I, that I can think of now. I mean, we do have a huge list of resources that are good. Mm-hmm. Um
0: definitely.
1: There's free rigs, for instance, yeah, that you can that's that a we'll really have.
0: I thought mm-hmm.
1: So one thing I definitely took advantage of when I was in school is I kind of stole my parents' Netflix account. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people do that because they allow it and it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, <laughs> HBO Go, Hulu, oh, yeah. all that stuff.
2: <laughs> That's right. So yeah, this, this one might sound like more of like a, I don't know like the equivalent of soft skills for, you know, okay. but there are like fun ways you or can. Like
0: collecting coupons. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. It might sound kind of silly, but I mean, I think it's still worth uh, mentioning this stuff, especially when you're in school, there's so much uh, peer pressure for, you know, different things. So it's good to just talk about little stupid ways that, you know, people <laughs> yeah. are saving money that everybody does.
0: Um, yeah, definitely buy used books and textbooks. Like I think at the schools I went to, those were always on, Sale at the mm. school bookstore was um, the used copies, which will be a little less expensive. And I think you can even find used books online for sale, which will be even cheaper than the school uh, store, which for some reason textbooks are so expensive. So much money, yeah. Um, so keep your eye out for that. Little obvious things like just cut down on your food costs. I know it's tempting to go out to <laughs> eat with all your friends. Um, But maybe you guys can collectively decide to (laughs) eat in sometimes and uh, cook rice and beans or order pizza or something a little less expensive.
2: (laughs) Yeah, another big one is to walk and take public transit as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I'll admit this is one where I was not as good. Because I was trying to woo a certain girl by giving her free rides to school, oh, Katie Low. Hey, oh okay. <laughs> good. <laughs> no, it was not Katie's fault. But uh uh-huh. I I No, it wasn't Katie. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh
0: no! <laughs> <laughs> like, what? He <laughs> yeah. was driving regardless. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I remember I had a couple roommates who uh we got to like the end of the quarter and they're like oh i hadn't i haven't even filled my gas this entire quarter and they you know probably by the end of it they had saved like 400 dollars that i had not saved just by driving yeah yeah. because i was driving around more so and it's healthier yeah stupid little things like that end up Mm -hmm. adding up so much if you take it over you know a few months and then multiply that by four years that you're in school and you know these little things make a huge difference
1: There's also something to be said about I remember when I was at NYU, there are so many resources that you get as a student that you probably aren't even aware of. Um, Like if you have a edu email address that gets that opens up a world of software discounts or free softwares and, you know. Things like we we wrote down here is use your school's computer camera equipment, just like equipment that they offer for students. You might not even be aware of like the amount of resources that they have for you.
0: Yeah, I know I just said it's worth it to spend money on a computer, but you might not have to if your school has a really good computer lab. So we're now transitioning into kind of the work-related money section of the episode, which is the juicy (laughs) section because number five – is how much do people in animation make? <sighs> oh, Huge My gosh. Question. We want to know too. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably the number one thing people want to know and people are scared to ask about. Um, and we will do our best to be as transparent as possible, but while still being respectful and maintaining privacy where necessary. Um, So we'll just start out by saying that it is an extremely wide range, and it is a very difficult and complicated question to answer because it is dependent on so many factors. It's dependent on um, what size studio you're working at what is your position what is your experience level are you working at a union studio or a non-union studio are you working freelance or full-time all of these questions play into the answer to how much do animators make so we will do our best to answer this question as quickly and succinctly as possible (laughs) um but we'll start out kind of Just talking more about how much animators make in our experience. Um, But I did want to give a quick disclaimer that it's very different between disciplines. For example, an experienced production supervisor can actually make less than a junior animator. So it really varies um, across disciplines. Generally, artists are getting paid more than production people. um, And there is even uh, some discrepancy between uh, departments in the art as well. So let that be heard that what we say is, is not the word of God. Totally. Um, but hopefully it's still pretty helpful and relevant for everybody.
1: It's quite a wide range. We put here, it, by the way, this took us like two to three hours of prep This <laughs> of question, because yeah. it sounds simple. How much do people in animation make? But it's very, it, like Katie described it's very complicated and one of the ranges we have here is you can be making anywhere from twenty thousand dollars a year to three million dollars so we hope that's helpful
0: <laughs> yeah so there you go that's it's, actually the range of this table exactly yeah, so you
1: have to guess which one makes the three million no. yeah it's it's a huge range guys and um uh yeah i mean first of all even the discussion of salary right let's Let's talk about that quickly. In animation, it's really hard to give an annual salary because oftentimes people are working on a project that could be a couple weeks, couple months. So some people use hourly rates, that's one way to describe it. Some use weekly rates, but I think if we do talk about salary in this section, it's going to be an annualized rate, meaning we're going to take the hourly rate and apply it to uh, a yearly. But it's typically, I'd say, in the in the L.A. area, it seems like it's an hourly rate
2: is more mm-hmm. often. Yeah, you will randomly, this kind of overlaps with yeah, the discussion of freelance and everything, but it's at the end of the day, it's just best to kind of have all the conversions ready to go in your mind because you never know when you're going to start working somewhere. They might say, hey, we're going to offer you X amount of money, and it could be weekly, it could be hourly, and it could be daily as well. Um, right. so it's good to know what each of those things means and then kind of how to handle it based on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, a day, well, a day is technically 24 hours. <laughs> Does that mean your eight hour work day or some places it it means 10, some places it means just the day you could come in at 9am and not leave until midnight. And that counts as your day rate. Um, so I guess the first piece of advice within this uh, huge category that we're tackling here is uh be ready to know your conversions and stuff. So basically if they're obviously talking to you in uh, for a weekly salary, take that, multiply it by 52 and that's your yearly take home. If it's if they're talking about hourly, take that, multiply it by 40 for 40 hours a week or depending on how many hours they work in a week and then multiply that by 52. Um so just kind of, it may sound obvious, but it can be a little disorienting, especially when you're getting like your first offer or something or first freelance gig, you're just like, I'll take anything, <laughs> you know, just have this stuff ready to go in the back of your mind and, and be ready to know kind of what the numbers mean that people are presenting you with and, uh, yeah, nowhere to go from there. Mm
0: hmm. So we're gonna dive right in and give some ranges for animators based on kind of experience level. And we arrived at these numbers kind of by comparing the animation guild minimums for different types of artists and different experience levels, which um we were we are going to have an episode about the animation guild very soon, um, just talk about what is a union and what does that mean for you and um, which studios are union. union. Um, so yes, we took into account the union uh, minimums, and we also compared that with kind of hearsay of other studios around the industry, which weren't union, um, and arrived at some pretty crazy ranges, but yes. <laughs> um, it's good to keep in mind. So to begin, if you are looking at an internship position, it could be, be anywhere between zero dollars and fifteen dollars an hour and we say zero dollars because possibly you are looking at an internship for school credit which is unpaid um and fifteen dollars is i believe the highest i've ever heard for an internship um because generally that's kind of minimum wage or that kind of thing um in la
1: probably yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah
0: i've maybe heard some like nice stories about video game studios paying higher and giving like free food and that kind of thing free ribbon board but i can't speak to that individually i've I've never worked there, but yeah, that's kind of the range for interns. Moving up to a junior-level animator, the range we would give for that is $15 to $40 an hour. <laughs> um, Quite a big range. Which is a huge <laughs> range, <laughs> but we can speak to both from experience, from sort of our friends around the industry, and most are probably going to be on the lower side, like 15 to 25 an hour or something like mm-hmm. that. But we can... We can we can say that we know of some juniors who are making more in the forty dollars range. Um, a mid level animator could be looking at thirty dollars to fifty five dollars an hour, and these are generally people who um, might who like have the official title of like animator, and maybe they're staff, maybe they're not, maybe they're a temp. Um, But that's kind of the range that we've seen. So moving on to senior and supervisor animator positions, our best guess is that the range would be $50 plus. An hour and that could be $50 or $60 or $80 an hour. We're not entirely sure.
2: That's right. You take an animator like Garrett Lewis, it's hard to put a price on (laughs) them. I mean, that could be, I mean, you know, give him whatever he wants.
0: (laughs) But we, none of us are supervisors or seniors, so we're not totally sure what they make.
2: It's really hard to
1: actually get a sense of what people are making in different stages, because one, because money is kind of a touchy subject, which we talked mm-hmm. about and people don't like discussing it. But one of the things we, what that can be helpful in this topic is if you look at the animation guild wage minimums, which we will provide a link in the show notes and we'll talk about it mm-hmm. more later, like Katie said, um, they have a comprehensive list of job titles and what the hourly rate is. The minimum, I should say the minimum hourly rate is. So right now for an animator, um, currently as of the recording of this podcast an animator listed in the wage minimum sheet is the minimum you can get is $47.23 per hour so that is might be helpful to know if if you're an animator at a studio mm-hmm. that's the minimum and we'll get into that more later
0: yeah and again that is specific to union studios so if you are right. consulting or negotiating with a studio that's not a union studio Unfortunately, they are by no means obligated to give you that minimum amount. It is only with the union studios, which um, for this specific union would all be in Los Angeles. So if you're looking at non-union studios, we should say it's kind of like the Wild West. Yeah. We have heard a huge range. Um, I think I, I we've written down here, we have heard everything from $90 a day to $80 an hour. So it, it is a huge range when you're looking at uh, freelance gigs or non-union studios. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it's hard to predict <laughs> that rate.
1: There's also a wage survey, which is different than the wage minimums. The, uh, the This is something that the guild provides where basically they ask the members to provide their pay, basically. And we can talk about animators really quickly. The median rate for 2018 was $2,000 a week. So I don't know what that uh, is in hourly. Do you Is mean, that $50 an hour? $50 an hour. There you go.
0: And definitely look up your discipline specifically. Like I was saying earlier, it will vary depending on your discipline and your specialty. So do your best to research. Um, I will give a little warning that... You might find a website like Glassdoor where some people list um, how much they got paid in their position. And I say, take those reports with a grain of salt you never know like who's contributing to those sites and it might be bias very high or it might be bias very low. So just kind of keep that in mind that it's not necessarily the standard rate at all that you're seeing on a website like Glassdoor.
2: So question number six that we received is what should you consider besides your hourly rate or your annual salary when uh, applying to a job? And this is a great question because yes, that's kind of the big attention getting thing that we all probably put the most emphasis on when we're starting a new job is what does it pay? But there's a lot to consider, um, aside from that, um, just to run through a couple things and then we can discuss things more at length is that, you know, some studios operate on a 40 hour week. Some studios offer on a 40 operate on a 40 plus five hour week, meaning it's 40 regular hours, then five of overtime. Some studios do more overtime than others. Some, you know, there's all kinds of stuff so to, things, yeah. to take into account. So so we can get into all of these a little bit more. But I think the overriding lesson I want to say with this stuff is when you're negotiating and, and whether it's for a freelance gig or for a full-time position or whatever, do not be afraid to ask questions. Ask All of these things, you know, what kind of overtime happens? Do you pay overtime? When does it kick in? Because some studios, it might be anything over 40 hours. Some studios, it might be anything over 50. Are there bonuses? Is there this? And there's all kinds of stuff. So we'll get into that a little more.
0: Yeah. Some other things that come to mind are what are the benefits that the studio offers? Do they offer things like health insurance or a 401k or anything like that? Um, you do definitely want to take into account the taxes involved with the position that you're looking at. Like typically, uh, freelancers actually pay higher in taxes. So that's something to keep in mind and why you actually might see freelance rates being higher than like a studio rate. Um, and also keep in mind a... Uh, position where you're working abroad it's possible that you might end up paying double taxes mm. um, because of that position so that's definitely something that you want to look at
1: on the topic of sort of like unpaid overtime one of the the things we wanted to quickly talk about is ghosting and ghosting in the industry is basically working um, hours that you are not reporting so for instance in a week, Say you're getting paid a 40-hour, you're getting paid based on a 40-hour week. If you're ghosting, you might be working 50 hours. Um, and we wanted to bring this up because there are some uh, studios that have might have a worse culture of ghosting. We typically discourage ghosting for a number of reasons. One is that it effectively lowers your hourly rate because you're basically working more hours than you're you know getting paid. So it's obviously like you're kind of lowering what you're earning. And it's it's a bad for some other reasons too, because you're kind of doing free work and therefore production is getting the sense that an animator in your position can do this work in the amount of time, even though you're actually doing it in more time. Uh, so try to, it's sort of hard, but try to find out what the culture of ghosting is, or if there is a culture of ghosting, hopefully not at the studio that you're interested in.
0: We can also frame this question as like, is unpaid overtime an expectation at the job you're going to work? Um, And I think I've kind of heard that unpaid overtime can be an expectation at a lot of the studios that are abroad or some of the more like freelance commercial studios. Um, So it's something to watch out for and keep in mind. Uh, And I think... I will say, like, I understand that you might be in a position where you feel like you have to ghost hours to keep your job for survival. And if you really feel that way, obviously we can't really fault you for that. But in general, the risk of ghosting and why I think we all strongly discourage you ghost is that you are setting up very unrealistic expectations for yourself where you seem faster than you actually are. So there you might then run into situations where you're given an an impossible deadline that you can't meet and then production doesn't understand why you can't meet it. So it's kind of a dangerous thing to do. Um, And culturally, I feel comfortable saying you run the risk of also kind of ticking off your coworkers. Yeah, of course. um, Because... You might be the young person who's hungry and thirsty and you want to, like, get your deadlines in faster. But then there are people more senior than you who have families and can't put in the same hours that you can. um, And you're kind of doing them a disservice.
1: Yeah. I, I wonder if it's important to add to there is a lot of times where you might be like there's a lot of studios out there that heavily encourage ghosting in subtle ways and in ways that are actually, or, or not so subtle ways. So, cause I mean, not every studio is union, union studios, by the way, we should mention union studios are 100%. You can't ghost. That's yeah. not allowed. You're You need to be reporting your hours. So that's a great thing that the union provides, but most studios in the United States are, and elsewhere are not union. And so it is, it is a challenge. And I will say that I've yeah. been there too, where you, you know, you don't want to look like you're not a team player or, you want to work. You want to look good in the eyes of your yeah. employer. So it's it's hard. I, I would probably say kind of talk to other coworkers about it. Yeah. Outside of work what is and just the culture. What is the culture and yeah yeah how to how to kind of navigate that? That's the thing you sort of have to go through almost. Yeah. To, to figure out
0: because I can just as easily remember times where people that we looked up to or were in senior positions kind of above us at different studios maybe have said things like, you should be the first one in and the last one to leave. Right, exactly. Um, which you'll hear advice on in like TED Talks or something. <laughs> so it is, yeah, it's very studio by studio and it's hard to gauge. But yeah, like Garrett said, just kind of try to get a feel for the culture and adjust.
1: I remember one of my first jobs, um, I was – very much in that boat of just like, yeah, you got to work all the time and be the last to leave. And then one of the more kind of seasoned coworkers I had kind of like tapped me on the shoulder one day and was like, dude, you got to leave at seven, leave at seven every day. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you don't do that, they're going to just expect so much from you. And you're, you're basically never going to Kind of set that boundary.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a really good point that like you have to maintain your personal life and you don't have to give everything to your job. And that's probably, yeah, number one reason why you shouldn't ghost is you're only getting paid for that time and you should use the rest of the time for yourself and your family and your friends. Amazing. Amen. Amen
2: to that. (laughs) So all of these things that you're considering, aside from your hourly rate or salary, um, will probably come up during your negotiations, which... Brings us beautifully to question number seven, which is, do you have any negotiation tips for us? Nice. And that is something we definitely cover in our Applying to Jobs episode as well. But we do want to talk about a couple things on this episode as well, uh, just to reiterate them. And yeah, if anything's unique, it's it's still valuable. Um, so one thing we kind of already talked about a little bit with question number six, but that I think is so important, I'll bring up again, is Try not to be shy and ask other similarly experienced people um, what they're making in a job or what kind of their their deal was coming to a company, uh, because there really is no more valuable thing to, <laughs> than to have all of that information at the ready and to know like, okay, this person got you know $35 an hour and two weeks of vacation. This person got $40 an hour and three weeks of vacation and kind of compare your experience and skill levels to theirs and, and kind of see where you might fit in.
0: Yeah, and generally, most of our friends and people we know aren't very squeamish about this topic. Um, you might feel nervous asking someone, but I think, again, we all kind of know that Transparency helps all of us. Mm-hmm. So I th- hopefully for the most part, people will be very receptive to you asking.
1: Yeah. And another thing, another kind of tip we have in the negotiations is try not to give the first number if you're asked about salary expectation. I know sometimes mm-hmm. this is unavoidable. But um, giving your first number sort of sets the limit as to what you can earn. And it also can be bad if you're asking for something that's so outside the realm of what someone's willing to give. <laughs> like I did. <laughs> <laughs> like Candy did in episode, which episode was that? Uh, episode for,
0: five, this, five, the setbacks. So yes, yes. Yeah. yes.
1: <laughs> Hear all about that in episode five.
0: Yeah, <laughs> when I very much misquoted the range for a director's assistant. So avoid my mistake. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty standard. But if you're asked about salary expectations, um, what would you guys say? I guess like kind of just like Ben said, do your research, talk to people who are similar Mm -hmm. beforehand. So you have
2: an answer that's not like grossly different than what it should be. Yeah. And I don't think you're required in any way to like definitely give an answer. So if you, if you really don't know what to say, and you don't want to say a number for risk of coming in way too low or way too high, I would open it up and just say like, "Oh, well, you know, I'd be really interested to hear uh what you think your company would normally offer an employee such as me with my experience level."
1: Or Do you think that'd come off like as that. kind of annoying? Like to if like I could see a studio being like, "Just tell me, I'm I'm giving you the opportunity to tell me."
2: Yeah, that's And you're kind of going, "Yeah, I don't that's know." It's a really good question though, and I, I think a big fear uh, especially if it's like your first gig or something yeah. or early on, mm-hmm. is that you don't want to be annoying. You don't want to do anything to mess it up. But I think I will tell you, take heart. And if it, <laughs> if they're at the point where they, where they want to make you an offer, it means they want you. That is true. Yeah. You know, and... Right. It is most likely, I would say, that a company is not going to say like, oh, well, they didn't give us a first number. So now, yeah, we don't (laughs) want them for that position. They, Chances are you've already made it through a large pool of applicants who are applying for the same job and and they are interested in you. So they probably won't let something as silly as that get in the way of them making you the offer. And then if they say an initial offer and you would like to ask for a little more, I think that's another big area where people are like, let's say they offer you $20 an hour and you're like, oh God, like I really feel like I should be making 30. A lot of people would be like, maybe I'll, you know, I'll ask for 24 then because you know, I don't want to go crazy and, and offend them and then they're going to rescind the offer. And I think there's some validity to that, that you don't want to go crazy and ask for like three times what they're offering you necessarily. But I would say err on the bold side. And the worst thing that will happen usually is they'll just say, you know, I'm sorry, that's not in our range. Can we do something more like this and and give another number or, or give the original one again? But I don't know. Off the top of my head, I'm sure there are some crazy circumstances here and there. But I can't think of anyone I know that got an offer. And then gave another number, and they were like, Okay, we don't want you anymore. <laughs> yeah, that just doesn't happen. I mean, they they want you, they made the offer, so they'll probably yeah, stick with you through the negotiations. Right. Yeah. I think now's a good
1: time also to bring up the fact that, um, you know, if you're a student and you're looking for your first job, negotiation is most likely not an option, and that's fine. Right. All of us were in that boat where mm-hmm. you just have to kind of take what you can get, and if you start negotiating, you could run the risk of kind of being like, why do you have like, like a studio being like, why are you negotiating? You have zero experience. I can't trust you to do anything. Um, So do you guys think that, you know, as a a person with no experience, just to kind of get started in the industry and just don't negotiate? Or do you think it's always worth a little bit of negotiate? Like, is there a balance here?
0: I I guess I would say, I don't think it hurts. Like we were saying, like they're not going to rescind the offer. So I think it's, it's worth trying, but yes, they might come back and just say no, which is fine. Um, but I would say, I think it's it's worth
2: worth trying. trying. Yeah. And this kind of overlaps with a point we made, uh, in a previous episode where it really is in your best interest to cast a wide net because Mm -hmm. the best possible position you could be in. If you're a student, you have no other experience. All you really have are if you can get more than one offer, then it's a great position. And, uh, yeah, if you're able and you don't have to, you know, like so many things in life, it's not what you're saying or doing. It's how you're saying. Yeah. Or doing it, right. So mm-hmm. you can very respectfully and objectively bring up, you know, okay, well, I would really like to work with you guys. But this other company is offering me X amount. And, you know, just for obviously, that would mean a different, an improvement in quality of life, I'd be able to maybe pay back my loans faster, this or that. Mm-hmm. I think that's okay to bring up you know in a in a very diplomatic way and if you have if you're able to get more than one offer if you're in that privileged position it doesn't have to be like this snooty competitive thing where like oh that's all you're offering they're doing this so i'm mm-hmm. gonna do that and screw you guys you know you can bring it up very diplomatically and i mm-hmm. think that yeah if you are going to that obviously gives you the most power if you're
0: yeah And I would also add to this topic to not forget that you can negotiate for things outside of the hourly rate and the annual salary which we were talking about earlier so you can negotiate for things like extra vacation or a signing bonus or even like a moving uh, bonus if you have to move across the country sometimes companies will offer you money to help with the move so absolutely keep those kinds of things in mind and in a lot of cases companies are more receptive to that kind of thing because it's kind of like a one-time little fee that they're giving to try to incentivize you to sign um as opposed to locking you in at a higher rate which they're going to be paying forever so (laughs) (laughs) that's something forever well as long as your employment (laughs) um so try to wield whatever power you can to get the most out of the offer Another thing to talk about with negotiation is just the simple act of negotiating. Like, I feel like because of TV and the movies, I've always pictured negotiation as this thing where I'm in the same office as the recruiter and he, they are at a desk and I am sitting in a chair <laughs> and we are like talking back and forth. To it's get like to a Man certain style. amount. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I guess in all of our experience, it has been nothing like that. Typically, yeah. it's ha- mm-hmm. something that's happening over multiple email exchanges, maybe on the phone. But in most cases, it's going to be like a multi-day, possibly multi-week Um kind of process of right. arriving at the final offer and it is totally okay to email and ask for more and um that is definitely the norm.
2: Actually yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um so we were just just prior to this we we're talking about ways in which you can kind of have power in the negotiation and one of your biggest assets if is time if possible. If you're, you know, I totally understand if it's like I need a job right now. I'm I'm leaving my current apartment in a week and I just got to lock something down, ultimately we understand if you just have to accept something and go for it. But if you are okay with, you know, kind of trying to field multiple offers and taking your time negotiating with a company, you're in a much better position. And, um, like Katie was saying, yeah, it often isn't like what you see on TV. A lot of times I could be wrong but I feel like in my experience a lot of times when a company makes their original offer it's on the phone a lot of times mm-hmm. or or it's just verbal in some yeah. way mm-hmm. and for whatever reason I, there's probably some legal reason that I don't know about but they they rarely put it in an, in an email but that doesn't mean you cannot email them hmm. then about, you know, a counter offer or something, which is what, yeah, what Katie said. Sorry, just repeating everything. No, but no <laughs> um, But um, there is so much pressure too to when somebody says something on the phone, you know, said, oh, we're going to offer you X amount. And then it's silent or like, mm-hmm. what do you think? And you have to be comfortable saying like, oh, you know, thank you so much for the offer. You know, I'm going to you know, think about it for a little bit or whatever and, be able to gracefully exit that conversation if you're not comfortable with accepting it right away because there is I feel like a lot of psychological pressure to just yes. be like uh, okay sounds good I'll do it you know <laughs> but you could be doing yourself a disservice um, you know so as a general rule I feel like even if you're pretty sure you're going to accept something I would try to just take a little breather and go home and sleep on it or or yeah. think about it and kind of and maybe come back with a counter offer
0: Yeah, because again, you know at that point that they want you. So Mm -hmm. you can kind of safely assume that there's probably wiggle room. Most companies don't offer what they can actually offer. They offer below. Mm -hmm. So it's something to keep in mind.
1: So one of the questions we got is how do you get more money than what you're currently making? Um, so if you're at a studio for a while and you're kind of unhappy with the pay you're getting, maybe you're not getting the raises that you've been wanting. Um, what kind of are some tips to deal with that? One thing we can definitely say to not do when you're communicating with a studio, uh, is don't compare yourself to others. So don't, you know, go into a room with your manager and say, Hey, look, Ben is earning, you know, Ten dollars an hour more than me, but I'm doing you know twice the amount of work. Why don't I deserve what he's making? Type of thing. That's, That's not exactly it. what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> that is no full disclosure. That is not what's happening. I just <laughs> I'm using this as an example, but uh, don't do that because it kind of comes off as unprofessional. That the thing we typically would say is to go in there with kind of ammo that you have like a list of reasons why you deserve a raise independent of other people you're not really mentioning other people you're not talking about oh man my rent re- was increased uh my cost of living is so high that's not really in the equation it's more what are you bringing to the studio what are you bringing to the company basically
0: yeah yeah
2: that's a good one and it might sound obvious but try to do objective things that are bringing value to the company, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's good if you're telling the truth and say, you know, Hey, I really went above and beyond in this instance, or uh, I'm trying to do this that might, you know, maybe the, the average worker is not doing. And, you know, we, we certainly are pro everybody getting paid as much as possible or, you know, more than they currently are, but then we're also pro doing things to justify that pay (laughs) and not just sitting back and being like, I want to make more money. Give me more just because, you know.
0: Yeah. I will say, though, on this topic that it's pretty well known that the best times to negotiate are either when you are starting anew at a company or when you are considering leaving a company and, and looking at outside offers. It's very hard to negotiate for more money while you're already at a company because the company kind of can fairly safely assume that you're not going to leave because you mm-hmm. haven't said, "Hey, like, I've, there's an outside offer. If you don't off- if you don't match or you don't ex- exceed their offer, I'm going to leave." So if you're just coming and saying, "Hey, like, I want to make more money," usually they're going to assume that if they don't raise your pay that you're probably just going to stay. So they have really no reason to raise your pay. So yes, those are the main power times, I guess, are when you're either about to start at a new company or when you're considering exiting a company. One thing to keep in mind, especially for the folks who are coming in fairly junior and maybe are getting their first gig, is that if you are coming up through an internship program or a training program, it's very possible that you kind of might get locked in on the lower end of the pay spectrum. Um, Like we mentioned, a lot of the interns will start at a rate that's like $15 an hour or something like that. Um, And so then... They might give you raises, but they might come nowhere near what sort of the average is for the industry if you're coming in as an outside hire or that kind of thing. Um, And it's it's kind of a trade-off. It's basically that the company is going to be paying you to learn, which is great. But then the benefit of them doing that is they can then get somebody... Uh, at a lower rate in the long term. So it's a trade um, and it's it's something to keep in mind if you're kind of looking at like your dream internships for the long run, maybe you could get locked into lower rates overall. And uh, it's just, yeah, something to think about.
1: I kind of have a funny story about this. Um, I had a friend who was freelancing in New York City and you know he was right out of school, no experience, um, and he was really looking for a job and um, a company reached out to him that he had applied to and asked him for, to be an intern there. And he said, I'm so sorry, you know, rent's expensive in, in New York. Uh, I, I can't afford to do an internship. Thank you so much. I'd love to talk more or whatever. Um, and they said, okay, well, what's your offer? Like, what do you want to make? And he went back at them with $100 a day because he thought that was a good freelance rate. <laughs> and uh, the company came back, okay, we'll do 90 so oh, his rate gosh. his first rate in New York City as a freelancer was $90 a day before taxes were taken out and you know he worked for a few weeks I think no a few months actually before he started talking to some of the other freelance uh animators who were at this company and there were, they were they started talking about their rates and he found out that they were making like $600 a day mm-hmm. and he was like He was getting the same type of like shots that these these people were getting. And he was like, What? Like, this is such a crazy, like, different. I always
0: said it's the Wild West. (laughs) It is totally the
1: Wild West. And, you know, in some ways it's fine because this guy had no experience and he was just trying to get his uh, foot in the door. But I think the big, like, kind of the lesson here is yeah, talking with other people in the company and figuring out what is what they're earning. It it really helps to know, to be educated on what other people are making at the company that you're, mm-hmm. you're interested in.
0: I think the last point that we definitely want to make when you're considering uh, a negotiation or going through a negotiation is if you're at the company um, and you want to negotiate for more and you kind of take the tactic of uh, leveraging an outside offer to get your current company to go higher, you have to be prepared to leave totally. mm-hmm. if the company, if your current company doesn't match or exceed the outside offer, because otherwise you run the risk of your current company knowing that like your word doesn't really mean anything mm-hmm. and you're kind of uh, what's the word?
1: There's a term for it, I know exactly.
2: Crying wolf. You're, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. You're they can call your bluff, basically. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so definitely be prepared to take that outside offer seriously if you're gonna use that tactic.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. It kind of goes to the seriousness of, you know, I think we kind of casually say, Oh yeah, that's when you have the most power. But I mean that's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so clear, you yeah. you need to uh yeah, and you don't necessarily want to be that's why earlier We said it's good to also focus on what you're bringing to the company. If if you really want to stay at the company and just you know feel like you deserve more money, try to uh, phrase it in the terms of you know, or frame it in the terms of you know, this is what I'm bringing to the company. I think this is justified because of X, Y, and Z. Because I think it's just going to get old really quickly if you come to your HR manager or whomever. (laughs) twice a year or whatever and say I'm out of here if you don't give me more and then they don't (laughs) do anything and then six months later say I'm out of here if you don't give me more and that you know it's just yeah you don't want to get into that situation it's kind of terrible for everyone (laughs) really it's bad for the company for whom you're working it's bad for you it's yeah Okay, so for number
1: eight, a big question we got is what are the differences between contract versus full time versus freelance? Like, what does all that stuff mean? And that's a great question because in animation, there's so many different types of work that you can get, and it's really confusing if you're Um, a student and you're, you know, being presented with all these things. All right. So to give a really simplified and quick overview of what each situation means, we can start with a full time staff situation. This is probably what you think of when you imagine someone going to work at like a nine to five desk job. In this situation, you're working at a studio full time with full or partial benefits. Um, Taxes are being taken out of your paycheck and you file your taxes every year like normal. Um, full-time staff positions are pretty hard to come by in animation because the work tends to be project-based, which actually leads me, uh, to the next type, which is contract work. So contract work is pretty much the same as staff, um, except that you have an end date. Uh, So your work will end whenever the project you are hired for ends. Um, So contracts can be anywhere between, you know, a week to a month to longer. It really totally depends on the needs of the project and the job you're hired for. Um, So similar to a staff position, you're likely to get full or partial benefits and taxes are being taken out of your paycheck like any normal job. So the, the last thing that we wanted to touch upon is freelance. And Freelance is a very, very common type of work situation in animation as well. And when you're freelancing, you're basically you're working for a studio, usually for a shorter period of time. And depending on the job, you can be working in your own home using your own equipment, or you can be going into the studio to use their computers and all that stuff. Um, Probably the biggest difference in freelance is that you are not getting benefits from the company you're working for and your taxes are not being taken out of your paycheck. So you're really getting just the gross amount, like all of your pay is coming directly to you. Um, so there are a bunch of tax things we'd really recommend researching uh, to understand the ramifications of everything. But the gist of it is you'll likely have to file quarterly taxes. So more often than once a year. And you're going to have to figure out how to deduct things like your computer, your rent, your car, or whatever um, it is you use for the purposes of your job. And this helps limit the amount you get taxed. And I know all this stuff is kind of confusing. Um definitely recommend, we recommend uh, researching this stuff yourself just to get a, a better picture of it. But I'd say if there's one thing I would take away about freelance, um, if you can take one thing. Um, about this, if you, when you get paid, try to put away like half of the money you earn for the purposes of paying taxes. It Sounds like a lot, um, but I just don't want you to, you know, run the risk of you know you you use the money that you were paid in full to you know pay off your bills or whatever, and you know when the then the IRS contacts you and says like hey like you know you got to pay taxes on that, and then you're kind of screwed. Um, so save a good portion of the money that you earn from freelance so that um, for the purposes of taxes later on. So we got a ton of questions about freelance and I think Katie is actually going to take it off with the first one.
0: One question we got about freelancing was how much are we supposed to charge as an artist and how do you price your work? How do you set your hourly rate? Um, and again, this is another kind of case by case situation Um, I think it kind of falls into two categories, like commissioned freelance work versus going to a studio as a freelancer. If you're someone who's been approached to do a commission, um, the questions I would consider are how much time do you expect this specific commission to take you um, and kind of set that hourly rate based off of that. Be very specific about the number of revisions that you're willing to do and kind of try to lay out the terms of this project with your clients so that you don't end up overworking um, and working way more hours than is actually like kind of financially feasible for you because maybe you promise the project for a certain amount of money and then you may end up working 10 times the hours that you expected to so that you're actually kind of losing money in the equation by taking on this project. So just be careful about that and try to be very realistic about how much time something's going to take and how much you need to get paid for that time to be worth it for you.
2: I feel like that's such a common one, right? Especially mm-hmm. when you're a student or just getting started because then it's like, oh, my friend's uncle <laughs> wants, a, yeah. wants an animated commercial and he has $200 and uh, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're like, okay, this will take me three months. I cannot live off of $200 in three months. So like, yeah, that's that's a tough one, but you have to try to be as honest as possible with yourself and with whoever's, you know, trying to commission you.
0: Yeah, actually, that goes really nicely into another question we had, which was how do you explain to clients the huge price difference in animation? And maybe someone who's approaching you for a commission is really not well-educated in your craft and how long it takes. Um, So I would be prepared to kind of provide comparisons. Like you can actually look at the guild wages that we mentioned and say, hey, these are the normal hourly rates for somebody that is in a similar position to me. This is what the major studios are paying their artists. Try to be as, um, I guess, specific as possible about just how much time these projects really take and explain like, oh, I did something similar to this commission uh, last year and it took me f- six weeks and that kind of thing. Um, don't be shy about the fact that to specialize in any of the disciplines in animation, it requires additional schooling, um, much like one goes to medical school or law school. We, too, attended schools that cost money um, to be able to get good at what we do. So, like, you wouldn't hesitate to pay a doctor a certain amount. So that's kind of an argument that I would make to explain why <laughs> why as an artist do I deserve the pay that I deserve. Um, and I want to double back to the how much, um, like how do I set an hourly rate as a freelancer question? Um, and this, it's a hard question again, cause you're going to be considering things like do they want my daily rate or do they want an hourly rate? Um, but you typically as a freelancer, will try to set it higher than average because of the things Garrett is mentioning about how freelancers are typically taxed higher. So that's why you might see freelancers um, having much higher hourly rates than people in... Uh, the staff, like animator positions. And then you also want to take into account the fact that you might have periods of unemployment. So you want to price yourself as highly as possible so that you can save up for those periods where you might not be actively making pay. Another wrinkle as a freelancer is that you will maybe not be receiving the benefits um, that you need to be an adult, like uh, health insurance. So you have to also pay those off yourself. So definitely be aware that you want to get as much as you can um, and be prepared to kind of defend your rate as, yeah, as best you can.
1: And speaking of making as much as you can, one of the all questions we also got about this was how do you make enough money between animation jobs? Which is a great question for someone who's freelancing a lot because oftentimes you're not working consistently 12 months out of the year. Uh, most mm-hmm. people in animation are definitely not. So, um, some of the things that we would suggest are definitely having some sort of emergency fund mm-hmm. of, you know, between one month to a year. If you, you know, it's a yeah. huge range. And obviously it's, it's very, um, you're in a very privileged position if you can have an emergency fund, but that's definitely just something to try to aim for so you have sort of a a stash of money that you can use in case of, of periods of unemployment.
0: Yeah, and you would want to calculate that by kind of looking at, okay, what is my monthly rent? How much do I usually spend on food and gas and just kind of price that out and then, I would build your emergency fund based off of your risk tolerance. Like, I, in our industry, like, I think it's smart to shoot for a longer emergency fund savings, like six months to a year, just in case. But we know that's a big goal for people. And um, it's just something to work towards. And hopefully you never have to use that or you only have to use it for two weeks to a month or something before you get your next gig. But absolutely fall back on that money if you need to.
1: So one of the questions we got is, uh, do most studios offer benefits like healthcare plans or 401k plans? Or is it only the major studios? And we thought about this a bit. Um, this is a tough one to answer. It's super case by case. And our advice about this is sort of when you're talking to studios and negotiating, this is something you really need to just ask. You need to ask what they're willing to, or what their studio provides for you um, as part of a compensation package. Do they have healthcare? Do they have 401k? Do they have commuter programs? Um, uh, do they have a pension? Like all this stuff is something, that's it's just so individual based on the studio. So you kind of need to just investigate yourself.
0: Yes, but on that topic, I guess it, it's, pretty safe to say that all of the major studios that we have encountered and worked at, yes, offered health insurance, yes, offered um, a 401k of some kind. Um, Yeah. In our experience, I can think of, yeah, everyone did.
2: So question number nine is how does the cost of living factor into everything? And this obviously covers a lot of things um, with what kind of jobs you're able to accept uh whether you should move to a certain area before you have an official job or what i mean mm-hmm. we know schools are all around the world but then a lot of times the industry is located in a fairly expensive place or you know you might have to be doing some traveling to find jobs so this is a big one it's just kind of running the numbers and figuring out how much is it going to cost you cost you just to exist <laughs> <laughs> in this area
0: Yeah, I would look at objective things like pull up the apartment costs for the cities and neighborhoods of the studios that you're considering. You can use sites like Zillow and apartments.com to pull up the price for a studio apartment or a one bedroom or two bedroom or that kind of thing um, and start kind of pricing it out. There are ways to save on living costs. You can live with roommates and, um, look for (laughs) slightly less nice areas, (laughs) perhaps at the expense of safety in some cases. But, um, like I'll give an anecdote and we'll give real world numbers here because, um, just it's useful for you guys to know. Um, so in, Ben and I first moved to Los Angeles, our first apartment was a one-bedroom apartment in Koreatown for 1550 a month. Um, and for Los Angeles, it was actually one of the cheaper apartments, whereas if we compared it back to our time in Savannah, Georgia, that was like a very, very expensive apartment um, and kind of comparing what you can get. Um, when we were students at SCAD, we had a three-bedroom house with two and a half bathrooms with a driveway and a yard for 1500 a month.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And in LA, we had a 600-square-foot um, one-bedroom apartment. So that kind of shows you how quality of life will be adjusted kind of moving to these bigger cities.
1: Yeah. And sort of related to this topic, one of the questions we got was, is it smart to move where the work is before you have work? And that is like a very common question. And it's something Mm. I remember I kind of grappled with coming to LA was I was I like, you know, should I try to get a job in LA before moving here? And of course, that's what you do, right? You try to apply for jobs when you're um, not there because it's obviously better. It'd be ideal if you could get a job and then move thereafter. But what you learn is it's really, really tough when you have no experience to get a job outside of um, where you're at. So it's really case by case, like a lot of the answers that we have here. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not a simple, simple answer. Uh we would say kind of investigate uh, what the cost of living is like kind of Katie mentioned with Zillow and see what you're able to afford. And if you can maybe if you can afford six months of unemployment in the place you want to move, uh, maybe it's worth it. Maybe. if But it's again, it's a risk. It's it's totally kind of up to your personal situation.
0: Yeah. And. I think we mentioned this a little bit in applying to jobs, but you don't necessarily have to disclose your location immediately when you're applying right. to jobs um, if you are willing to move kind of at the drop of a hat. So you can certainly apply to things out of state, and unless it's an absolute requirement, if there's a form or something, you can kind of choose not to disclose that information immediately until you're required to, um, and then you don't kind of lose... Uh, yeah, you don't kind of lose out on them only prioritizing local candidates. Um, But generally, yeah, it's all about risk tolerance um, and kind of your faith and your ability to get a job. I did want to add to, like, I'm thinking more about kind of the numbers I was (laughs) quoting. There are ways in these big cities for sure to pay less than Ben and I kind of paid along the way. Like, we know friends that share like a house and, somehow like because of the number of people in that house their rent is more like 400 a month um it's probably more of a rare situation in the city here but it is possible um and then on the opposite end of the spectrum we know friends who have a studio apartment for 2000 a month and are paying like way more so it's there's a range and again just check out those websites to give to give yourself an idea
2: So one of the other questions we came across that kind of fits under this umbrella of uh, living expenses is uh, somebody asked that in terms of budgeting for transportation, is a car the only real option in L.A.? And I think years ago, the answer would probably be yes, but now we would say probably no. It is not the only option. That being said, all of us have cars and drive to work every day, (laughs) so we would say it's our preferred method. But we do definitely know people um, who have made it work living in L.A. for, in some cases, years without having a car. And either they were able to live close enough to work that they could bike or walk there or they just dealt with doing like Uber every single day or, or like Uber mm-hmm. pool or something. So it's a little cheaper, but they just have to budget a little more time for getting to work Um So in short, the answer is no, it's not an absolute necessity. We know there's this big stigma with LA that, you know, if you don't have a car, you can't live. That's, that is not the case. A car certainly makes things easier, but, um, it is not a deal breaker if you don't have the kind of money just sitting around to get a car immediately.
0: Yeah, I guess like more specifically, just riffing off of what you said, if you're not going to have a car, then we highly, highly recommend that you live within biking or walking distance of work. That's kind of the requirement if you're not going to have a car. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the public transit system is just not there to support any distance beyond that because you might be looking at multiple bus transfers and it could take you an hour and a half to get to work for a drive that could take you 20 minutes or something like that. So that's kind of the giant caveat is if you're not going to have a car, then you absolutely have to prioritize living to work as closely as possible and you may be sacrificing things like being able to meet friends um, at a restaurant that's not in your neighborhood or something like that. But then in that situation, yeah, again, you could Uber, like Ben said.
1: Yeah. And people who freelance, this is kind of a, an ideal situation because, you know, you, you're working from home potentially and you you might like the thing that you gain from not having a car is you don't have these insanely high insurance rates that we all pay per month being in LA and you're not paying off your car, you're not paying gas, you're not paying maintenance. So I'd actually be curious to do the math on whether mm-hmm. having a car versus Ubering, like what's cheaper? Because, you know, my gut says, okay, Uber's going to be expensive. But actually, when you factor in all the costs, I don't know if... it's a good question. It, yeah. So that's why maybe it's worth doing the math. But I certainly know uh, people who freelance uh, in animation in LA that do not have a car and mm-hmm. it financially makes a lot of sense for them.
0: Moving beyond transportation and on to food. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a big question. When you live in a city, there's a lot of pressure, I think, to like, go out to eat a lot and meet friends for dinner or that kind of thing. And you do end up, you could end up spending a lot of money on food. Um, so, in terms of the cost of living, you can do things like try to cook at home and um, eat more sort of budget food options. Like I think we were talking about this a little bit before we are talking about saving money as a student, but you can do the same things. You eat rice and beans, um, Trader
1: Joe's frozen meals, Trader Joe's Mm -hmm. frozen
0: meals, pizza. I mean, hopefully not at the expense of your, um, yeah, there are definitely ways that you can cook from home to save money.
2: (laughs) That's right. Don't get your rice and beans from Whole Foods, unfortunately. We love Whole Foods, but <laughs> <laughs> if you're on a budget, I just think of like the uh, Indian market we go to and there's like 80 yeah. pound bags of rice and they're like 50 cents. That, oh my <laughs> gosh. That's the way to go, man. Yeah. Have you got this? Is a question we
1: got about how much do you worry about the flow of income? Like, have you? I think we talked about this earlier and, um, I think people are concerned whether, you know, because animation is so project-based and freelance-based, is there always this anxiety that, you know, oh my gosh, what's my next job? I'm not going to be able to like pay rent, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the thing we came to is that I think earlier in your career, this will be something that you're concerned about because obviously it's harder to get jobs when you have less experience. Mm -hmm. But the hope is, and certainly we can all say that we're, we're at a place where... We're very fortunate and we're lucky enough to not worry about this so much anymore. I mean, certainly we're all scared all the time about i mean, being laid off. Like everyone's, you know, scared about it's it. A but
0: possibility. It's
1: certainly a possibility. But um, I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. Is that...
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we can be honest and say like we technically all have end dates and that's something that like we, you know, it's a little scary to think about, but... Generally, I think we feel fairly secure and typically people kind of get extended, fortunately, and um, it's not something we super worry about at this time, but things that can kind of help alleviate that fear um, are things like an emergency fund. And actually, this is going beautifully into number 10.
1: Oh my gosh, it is. Yeah, which <laughs> yes. our,
0: our very last question is how, um, what do you do if you get laid off and how do you make enough money between animation gigs? Like, help me. (laughs) 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 Um, And yeah, as I was saying, um, you definitely want to maintain and build up an emergency fund as best you can, which is basically money that you can tap into in case of unemployment. Um, And I would typically say to try to be on the safer side in our industry. Um, And I mean, shoot for six months to a year of expenses if you can. I know that's a really high goal, um, but it's something to shoot for just in case you do face periods of unemployment. You want to be prepared to pay things like the rent and pay for food and pay your utility bills um, and kind of keep the lights on and you can cut sort of unnecessary expenses so things like your gym membership or streaming services anything that's kind of supplementary that's not kind of key to your survival um this this would be a time where you look to cut those things um and getting laid off it it's a normal part of the industry like don't wallow and and think that this only happens to you and feel bad about it. It's something that is kind of part of the normal life cycle of artists in our industry is that this kind of thing does happen, Um, which uh, I would say kind of ways to get through this are that you might want to consider some side hustles. There's no shame in nannying or uh, doing some dog walking gigs or becoming a waiter or waitress just to kind of pay the bills for a little bit while you um, saddle up your next gig, but yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to go through, but you can get through it.
1: Yeah. And in this topic, I think we mentioned this in, in other episodes, but, um, I mean, if you're laid off, definitely look into the unemployment insurance of your state, because it's something, um, as a taxpayer, you know, you pay into this and it's for you. It's for in our industry when everyone's, and when a lot of people get laid off, that is something that is a resource that people uh, should use. I think. I think it's definitely helped me in in cases where I've been laid off, and um, it's certainly not something to be ashamed of using. I think there is a little bit of a stigma
2: with it, um, but you should use it. Yeah. Also, uh, another thing to keep in mind with, um, you know, how kind of common layoffs are or can be in this industry is that it's always good to be networking um i know there's kind of a tendency that if you've got a really nice gig or a staff position somewhere you there's a tendency to tendency to kind of clam up and you know not talk to other studios or or recruiters or you know if a recruiter reaches out to you I, i would say even if you're comfortable where you are say be very nice and respond and say hey i'm not really looking for anything but right now but i would love to stay in contact and you know, ultimately, it it can be such a feast and famine industry that it's best to just have this big network out there and kind of always be talking to people. And this is something we've touched on in past episodes where you want to play the long game. It's not always about, mm-hmm. you know, what job I have right now. And that's the only thing that matters. Um So, of course, you know, sometimes layoffs are unavoidable and and periods of unemployment are unavoidable, but you can certainly make it much better for yourself by casting a wide net and, um, so that if unfortunately things don't work out for you and you get laid off, you, you have multiple recruiters or HR people you can, you can reach out to and say, Hey, I'm available now. And I would, you know, if you have anything available, um, yeah, it's just kind of it's extra insurance for you because um, and not only if you're just laid off, you never know when you might want to change up of some kind in your in your career. So it's good to, you know, networking doesn't stop when you get your first job out of school. Um, it's it's kind of this career long thing that you should always be doing.
0: Tip jar. Tip. So this episode, our tip is all about personalizing hotkeys in hot Maya. Keys. What's that? (laughs) So hotkeys are, I mean, it's basically like a key on the keyboard that you can assign a process or task to. And it's something that you do to make your workflow just that much more efficient. Mm. So do you guys have any hotkeys that you use all the time or that you couldn't live without
1: definitely have one for framing like next frame previous frame yep. I, I know that one for sure and i have a playback one i mean
2: those are kind of obvious like play pause frame forward frame back do you have any ben i have a quick one for um i think it's called the same like mirroring uh, selecting something like if i select one arm but i just want to have both of them so oh, I, do I have a hockey nice. that i can really quickly hit that yeah whatever i'm selecting will automatically select it's corresponding yeah, I
0: could yeah. see that being useful for like mouth corners or brows, mm, exactly or like eyelids yeah. that kind of thing that's yeah. exactly right interesting that's great
2: I'll use it for yeah. shoulders a lot I notice like shrugs and mm. stuff it just yeah. a, it, they're usually like really quick little things that are just saving you like a couple clicks you know that yeah. you can hit this key instead of you know clicking on these two things but it and it may up. not sound super yeah. crazy, but yeah, by the th- yeah, if you think about you're on a production for you know six months to a year, and you're using these hockeys every day, and you know it's saving you one second every minute for mm-hmm. I'm not going to do the math, but it's a lot of time, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I just set up hotkeys, which I really like just for little things like hiding image planes. Like if I want to hide and show my reference, because sometimes when the reference is showing, it'll slow down the scene a little bit. Um, I have one for hiding and showing the manipulators for Mm. the controls, um, just because sometimes they can kind of obstruct the character. So I like to hide them if I want to see the character more cleanly. Um, yeah, those are like really tiny ones, but I think they're pretty useful. And, um, I got one from Joe Hallmark, our friend, who's going to be on the episode about Uh, online schools versus Mm. brick and mortar schools. Yeah, (laughs) spoiler. Which is to swap the cameras in your scene, so like you only have one viewport open, because having multiple viewports and cameras can also slow down your Mm. scene. So I have a hotkey which can switch between the perspective view and the shot camera, or like the site, the orthographic views, or that kind of thing. I'm just kind of at the click of a button, it will kind of rotate between those cameras and until I get to the one I want. Um, Yeah, little things like that. Anything you can do to optimize your workflow, it really will add up to make you that much faster.
2: So, with that, we are coming to the end of this episode. Really quick, before we plug all of our fun (laughs) social media stuff. And Katie is laughing because I've already flubbed this like nine times, but we're going to get through this one. Get through it. All right. So, before I get to that, I want to say definitely stay tuned because Katie is going to go through her Money Basics 101 course, which is a Katie Masterclass in all things money. You're going to be rich by the end of this.
0: I can't guarantee that.
2: Okay. Can't guarantee (laughs) that, but. You'll have a better chance of being rich. <laughs> but, so, again, uh, feel free to hit us up on all these social medias. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, whatever you want. Give us a like, a subscribe, or whatever you do on any of those. <laughs> it's the Animation Happy Hour. We really appreciate it. And, yeah, it really does us a lot of good. So, thank you for doing that. And with that, my name is Ben.
0: My name is Katie.
2: And I'm Garrett. Thanks for listening. And happy, happy.
0: So, welcome to Katie's Corner, otherwise known as Money Basics 101. Or
1: the lowdown. Or
0: the (laughs) lowdown, as we established. We're going to keep it casual. It's basically going to be me talking for a long time while these two sip on their beers and watch me. And (laughs) I'll do my best to get through it. But if you're here, thank you for listening. I'm going to be covering a lot of the very basic nitty gritties of basic kind of adulting and money, which are not specific to animation but are entirely relevant to every person who needs to make money and manage their money, which is everyone pretty much. (laughs) So, hopefully, this information will be useful to you. It's something that I'm very passionate about. kind of covering because i only very recently kind of got more comfortable with personal finance i think there's definitely kind of a stigma if you're like on the artsy side to know about money like we kind of feel like oh this is like financial people's domain and i don't need to learn about this or it's not some it's only for really smart people or it's only for rich people to know and care about money like when i was in college i even like kind of looked down on people that were taking econ classes. But now, (laughs) in my older age, I kind of think that was foolish because it is something that we all deal with in our lives and could benefit from more knowledge about. So bear with me. We're going to get through some kind of dry, basic stuff, (laughs) but it's all stuff that I think everyone should know. So the first topic that I want to cover is just the basics of setting a good budget. Um, One very easy rule, which a lot of financial experts recommend, is following something called the 50-30-20 rule. And basically, this is kind of a way to divide up your budget and think about how should you be spending your monthly income. And the best way to explain this is that 50% of your income should go to things that qualify as needs. So these are things you can't live without, like your um, your room and board, you need to pay your rent. This is for food. Um, at the bare minimum. We're not talking about going out to eat. We're talking about just the food you need to survive and
2: rice and beans.
0: Yes, rice and beans. It's <laughs> like Franks and Franks I was beans. Say,
2: that's not a euphemism. <laughs> I
0: don't even know that. Um, yeah, so basic groceries, your utilities, the bills to keep the lights on, uh, health insurance, things that you can't live without. Um, m- transportation, I think, could factor in here as long as it's not like you leased like, the latest Tesla or something and you, you're leasing the most expensive car you could. But basic transportation. So this should be about 50% of your income. Um Within that 50% directed towards your needs, one other benchmark I like to keep in mind is that try to keep your rent below 30% of your income, ideally as low as possible. Um, This is an area where you can kind of really reduce like a fixed cost uh, and save. So that's kind of a good benchmark. If your rent is like 50 to 75% of your income, that is a huge red flag. I speak from this personally, like when I had more entry-level jobs and I was living in New York City, like my rent, I think, Costs like 90% of my income when I was an NBC page. And that was a huge red flag um, and definitely something that you should try to avoid. Okay, so moving on to the 30% of the 50-30-20 rule, 30% of your income can go towards what they say are called wants, which are things that you generally kind of enjoy in your lifestyle to make you happy. So things like the gym, or going out to eat, or going to movies, going to shows. Um, Just things that you do to be happy but are not a requirement for (laughs) your basic survival. So 30% can go towards wants. And then the last 20% um, go towards the future. So the future we would categorize as things like student loans or retirement. These are like kind of debts and savings that you should be covering. Um, And I think, yeah, generally they recommend try to put 20% of your income, income, excuse me, towards the future. Um, Granted, if your personal situation is such that you have like very high interest credit card debt or something like that, you can absolutely like adjust these percentages to target those things faster. But generally, this is a pretty good um, benchmark for most people as a way to kind of build your budget out. And I would do things like literally for one month, track every expense that you have and see where you kind of line up against these benchmarks and see how you're doing. And you might be pleasantly surprised that you're falling nicely within this budget, but there's something just kind of so reassuring about doing this practice. And you can use apps to help you out. Um, I pretty religiously use an app called Mint to track our expenses. Uh, It's a free app where you can link your bank accounts, your credit card accounts, any investment accounts you have um, and it's automatically tracking transactions and things like that. Um, just so I can keep an eye on my finances. and I think it's a good rule of thumb to try to check on your financial situation as often as you check social media. Like just be very aware of what's going on in your bank accounts in um, how much money you're spending, how much money you're saving. It's just it's just good practice. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of the basics of the 50-30-20 rule. Um, This is something that I've seen time and time again in books and podcasts that I've listened to on money. Um, If you want to learn more about it, I highly recommend you check out Um, the book Broke Millennial by Aaron Lowry. You check out the podcast So Money with Farnoosh Torabi. There's a book I really like called The Millionaire Next Door, which kind of actually set me on kind of my financial journey to learning more about personal finance. Um, So I would say check out those resources if you want to learn more. All right. You guys still with me? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, Yay! Of course.
0: Budgeting. <laughs> okay, so moving on. So the next topic that I wanted to cover is what is a savings account versus a checking account? Uh, these are basically two types of baking accounts that one would have. A checking account is more for day-to-day expenses, and it doesn't earn interest at all, so the money is just kind of sitting there for you to use, and typically... Um, you would use this money kind of more for the short term and you can withdraw as many times as you want within a month. This is different uh, from a savings account where you can't withdraw more than six times uh, and you will actively earn interest on the money in a savings account. I will say that you should pay huge attention to the interest rate on whatever savings account you pick. A lot of the brick-and-mortar banks, like the famous names you'll see, like Bank of America, TD Bank, any banks that actually have a physical store, the annual percentage yield, or APY, uh, is probably going to be lower. So you might see an interest rate of 0.01%. And that means that you're earning 0.01% on the amount of money in that savings account for the year. And you might literally see pennies returning in interest. Uh, Whereas if you compare that to an online bank, You could actually earn an interest rate which is closer to 2% and see real money uh, being earned in that savings account. So I hugely, hugely recommend that you check out sites like NerdWallet or Bankrate to compare the APY, the annual percentage yield of your savings account. The only kind of downside of using an online bank for your savings account is that you might not be able to immediately withdraw that money. There might be a day or a few days wait before you can access that money. So you just want to keep that in mind in case you think you're going to need that money more immediately. But in general, I think this is maybe my number one tip is to maximize the APY annual percentage yield in your savings account and make money, make your money work for you to get more interest in your savings. One kind of mini pro tip I have about uh, savings accounts is most employers give you the option of directly depositing your money into your bank accounts. And I only discovered this fairly recently But you can actually automate savings going into your savings account. So you can divide up your paycheck to say, hey, I want 75% of my paycheck to go to my checkings account and I want 25% of my... Or of my paycheck to go to my savings account. And that way you're not even thinking about saving. It's just something that's being automated and built in. Uh, Similarly, you can automatically deposit money into your 401k if your employer offers that. And that money, again, is automatically withdrawn. So wherever you can, just automate savings. Moving on, the next topic I would love to cover is just kind of the basics of what is a credit score. I remember being younger and seeing commercials like what's freecreditscore.com and why do I care about my credit score? Um, Basically, a credit score is something that you might use to apply for a loan or a mortgage or a credit card or even a lease for your next apartment. Uh, It could also be pulled to apply for a car loan, things like that. And what the credit score is, it's going to sound a little weird and arbitrary, but there are these things called credit bureaus uh, with names like Equifax, et cetera. And they are pulling information on your financial history to kind of calculate how safe is it for people to lend to you. And that's why these credit card companies care. That's why your landlord cares because they're trying to see, are you someone who's likely to default on a payment? Um, so the information that they're kind of looking at uh, is or would include Your previous payment history. How good are you? How good have you been about paying off your bills? How good are you at paying off your student loan debt? Are you making regular payments? Have you ever defaulted on payments? They're also looking at how much debt do you currently carry? Um, how much is owed? Um, they are looking at what is the mix of your credit? Like, what are the types of uh, credit that you have access to? What? Like, do you have multiple credit cards? Like, what's kind of your financial picture? Um, They're looking at how long your credit history is, which unfortunately can be (laughs) kind of counted against you if you're someone who's younger, maybe you don't have a ton of credit history. Um, They're also looking at new credit, which is like, have you randomly opened like 10 credit cards recently? Um, Because that could also be a warning sign. So all of these things are kind of, factor it into your credit score. Um, some quick ranges, which you can find online pretty easily and we'll put in the show notes are a 300 to 629 credit score is considered bad, 630 to 689 is considered fair, 690 to 719 is considered good. 720 to 850 is considered excellent.
1: I love how arbitrary these numbers are <laughs> t- t- for, for what's considered excellent. They couldn't just do 1 to 100. It's just 1 to 850. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Is there a reason for the numbers like that? Do you know?
0: I don't know. That's so weird. A good question.
2: <laughs> and from 301 to 628, you're, you're still bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, And just general tips about trying to get a better credit score, make your payments on time, whether it's for credit card rent or student loans. I would even consider paying off your credit card every other week. So you're paying it off twice a month because one little nuance is that these credit bureaus can pull your information at any time of the month. So they might pull it right before you're about to pay off your credit card. And then that means that your debts owed is a little bit bigger than usual. You also want to keep your credit utilization rate as low as possible, which is basically how much of the credit you have access to are you using. Like if your credit card lets you charge up to $5,000, how much of that $5,000 are you actually charging? And generally, folks recommend that you keep that below 30%. Um, one more little pro tip about credit scores is you don't necessarily want to cancel your earliest credit card, even if... Maybe you got a new credit card recently, which has better perks and benefits. If you have good credit history on that card, that is factored into your score. So I have heard the advice that maybe just carry a small charge on that early credit card every month. So maybe you only charge gas on that credit card and you just pay that off once a month because you don't want to lose that good credit history. I want to end this topic by just talking about some little nuances and myths about credit scores, which I've been confused about in the past um, if you're brand new to this you do not start earning credit until you open your own personal credit account. So even if you say daddy gave you a nice credit card, um, but you're not the primary account holder, you're not earning the credit that your dad did um, by him opening that account for you. Another myth is sort of this idea that carrying some credit month to month will boost your score. Um, I've heard this because people think that credit card companies kind of want to know if you if they can earn interest off of you, so maybe that pluses your score. But in general, it is way better practice to just pay off your balances consistently. And it's, I think, a little too dangerous to um, carry balances month to month and earn interest on that. Just pay it off. Um, and the next myth I wanted to address is that opening a new card will hurt your credit, um, I know people have been kind of dissuaded from opening like a new credit card because yeah, you're worried that your score is going to take a hit. But if you're not actively going to be using your credit score soon t- for something like applying for a new loan or applying for a new lease, you don't really have to worry about your credit score taking a hit. It's probably just going to be a few points. And the pros that you could earn from like a better credit card that's more suited for you are probably higher than your credit score taking a hit. Um, But giant caveat, it can be dangerous to open a bunch of new credit cards all at once. Um, That is something that they're keeping an eye on. So beware of that. Okay, so directly connecting to credit scores are credit cards. Um and I wanted to talk a few about a few things with credit cards. The first would be how do you find a good credit card for you? Uh there are a lot of really great websites where you can kind of talk about or enter in certain search criteria like maybe you want a travel card, maybe you're brand new and you want to look up what are the best cards for a young person or someone who's new to credit cards, And um, these sites I would say are uh, websites like Credit Karma, NerdWallet, Forbes.com. Um, and keep in mind that when you're young, because you don't have credit history, you probably won't be able to qualify for the best credit cards on the market, but you can still hopefully find some pretty decent ones to build credit with um, and then kind of move up from there. As you start to use credit cards, Maybe you'll start to grow or, or accrue credit card debt. Um, and you should know that credit cards earn much higher interest than things like student loans or a mortgage. Typically, credit card interest rates can be things or could start at like 15% plus So it's any debt you carry on your credit card is going to accrue and grow much faster than these other types of debt. And you'll hear terms thrown around like bad debt versus good debt. So bad debt is very high interest debt like credit card debt and good debt is low interest debt like student loan debt um, or in some cases a mortgage. So we typically recommend or financial experts recommend that you pay off your bad debt before the good debt or prioritize that um, so you don't lose money on that interest. (laughs) Say you have a ton of credit card debt. What can you do to help pay that off? One option that you might have heard of is a debt transfer. And this can be a useful tool for paying off credit card debt, but it comes with a giant kind of clause or disclaimer So you'll see that a lot of credit cards and banks offer debt transfers, which essentially say that they will take over your old credit card debt at a 0% interest rate for a specific time period. So maybe you're transferring your debt at a 0% interest rate and you have a year to pay that off from the time of signing this new credit card. Um but this is a little dangerous because if you do not pay the or do not pay the debt off in that time period usually what happens is once that time period is over the the new credit card hikes the interest rate even higher than your old credit card so you have to be very sure that you can pay off the debt in that amount of time if you're going to consider this option. It can be super motivating and extremely useful as a way to kind of press pause on the interest. Um, but you just have to be ready and disciplined to pay off the debt if you're going to use this. One thing I wanted to mention with credit cards is do your best to stay on top of your payments because you, again, you don't want to accrue interest. Keep track of your spending um, with the apps that we were talking about. This is also very useful for kind of catching fraudulent charges. I've actually caught a couple of cases of fraud on my card just because I'm very vigilant about watching the spending on my card. And I noticed a transaction that I absolutely did not do um, and called a credit card company to alert them. So it's very useful just to be on top of it for that reason. Um, And you can even, most credit card companies offer an option where you can automate payments. um, And that's a really easy way to keep track of your spending and make sure that you're on top of your bills. So the next topic I wanted to cover is just kind of basics of saving for retirement. I wanted to talk about this topic because the younger you are, the easier it is to save for retirement because of the power of compound interest. So I wanted to kind of express some real-world numbers about how much you would actually have to save if you start saving at age 25 versus age 50. So I'm going to read out some numbers, and this is all based on the very optimistic scenario that you can save $1,000 a month, which is $12,000 a year. Um, so if you can do that and you start saving $1,000 a month at age 25, upon retirement age with a 4% rate of return for the year, you could have $1,309,526. But let's say you do the same thing and you start saving $1,000 a month at age 40 with a 4% rate of return you would only have $583,758 or sorry $583,758. So that is less than half of what you would have saved if you had started at age 25. So those are just some numbers to show you just how powerful compound interest can grow. So if you find that you know your grandparents like are giving you graduation money or something and it's not money you immediately need to spend, maybe it's a good idea to start uh, saving that money for retirement if you're young and you have extra money. I will include like more numbers in the show notes just to kind of give comparisons of if you start saving this much and when, Um, but just know the younger you start, the easier it is to hit your retirement goals.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy to see these numbers because you realize like <clears throat> like how much time is on your side.
0: Like we always think of retirement as something that you don't have to worry about until you're older. But if you don't worry about it until you're older, you're going to be playing catch up and you can really get ahead of the curve the earlier you save. So tying into The retirement topic is kind of the basics of investing. I want to caveat again that I am not a financial advisor. I'm not a certified financial person or what is it, CFP? Certified financial planner. Yes, I am not a fiduciary or official by any means, but there are some basics of investing that I feel comfortable covering, Um, just because you hear these terms thrown around, like 401k, IRA, and we don't all necessarily know what they mean. So very basically, a 401k is a savings and investing plan offered by employers, and it gives employees a tax break on money that they set aside for retirement. Um, a lot of employers offer 401ks and you'll hear about matching, which is basically uh, the employer will match the amount you contribute to your 401k up to a certain percent. And that is a really powerful thing. If that is ever something that's offered to you, you should absolutely max out matching because it's free money that your employer is giving you to help you save your retirement. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you typically automate payments towards your 401k. So it's a, it's super beneficial because it's money that you're not even really thinking about that is automatically being directed towards your retirement. A lot of people, I think, have misconceptions where they don't realize that a 401k is an investing platform. Like It is made up of stocks and bonds or certificates of deposits from banks and that kind of thing. And I know some people are a little squeamish about investing, but overall, um, there's evidence to back that investing is going to earn you more money um, over time. And a 401k is typically a safe investment vehicle for retirement. And you can... Depending on how the market's performing, you can kind of expect an average rate of return between 4 and 8% on your retirement savings. So that's why you do not want to just let your money sit in a checking account and never earn interest um, because you are missing out on really valuable, again, compound interest that can be used to work in your favor um, one other detail about 401ks is there is a contribution limit, and this is something that like they adjust kind of annually. But this year, the contribution limit is $19,500. I'm sure that sounds like a lot of money and it's hard to hit, but it's a good goal to try to max that out. Um, and one like very nuancy detail about this is the more you're contributing to your 401k, the lower your income taxes are going to be. So I don't really, I'm not great at crunching the numbers when it comes to like maximizing your tax benefits, but that's a that's a pretty good important detail to think about.
1: Is it worth re- really quickly bringing up and very like explain like I'm five terms of 401k? It's like if your weekly paycheck is $1,000 and you Set aside ten percent for your four hundred one k. That means um, one hundred. Did I say this right? One hundred dollars will be deducted from your paycheck. Basically, you won't see that one hundred dollars. Right? Like you'll get nine hundred dollars, and then the one hundred dollars goes away. You don't see it. And if you're lucky, your employer, yeah, will match pay potentially ten percent. So they'll put in a one hundred dollars of their own money. Is that how it works?
0: Yeah, usually they'll match what you contribute dollar a dollar amount up to a certain point. Great. And it's specific to each employer, but it's usually a dollar dollar amount up to, yeah, like 10% or whatever it is. Um, but you do not want to leave that money on the table. You absolutely want to earn it. Some little things about the 401k that I'll mention quickly, which I know I caused me a lot of anxiety as I was entering the industry, are like, how do you even sign up? And what do you do if you switch employers? But basically, um, when you first sign with a company, they'll probably ask you if you want to opt into the 401k, and it's usually pretty simple. Um, if you are moving from company to company, you can do what they call a rollover, where you can roll over your old 401k into your new 401k, and usually that just involves calling the company and saying, hey, I want to roll over my 401k into my, I just switched jobs and I want to. Roll it over into my new one um, and they can assist you with that. So don't be scared of those logistics and let that make you miss out on the money. So just kind of uh, soldier through those kinds of anxiety inducing things and get the money that you deserve. If your employer doesn't offer a 401k, there are other retirements or retirement accounts that you can look into. There's something called an IRA, which is an individual retirement account. And you can use an IRA to invest in stocks, bonds, and other financial assets. Um, and you can open an IRA account with a bank, with a broker, with an online app. Um and there is again a contribution limit. I think right now the contribution limit is $6500. Um this is year 2020 in case you're listening in the future. But <laughs> um that's something to keep in mind and you'll hear a couple of terms thrown around like a Roth or a traditional IRA. So a Roth is taxed when you put money into your IRA and a traditional IRA is taxed when you take money out. Um, This is definitely dependent on your specific financial situation. Roths are kind of incentivized for people that are making less money um, because it is kind of tax advantage towards uh, lower income folks. I think there's an income limit. Like If you're filing as a single person, you can't make more than $124,000 in a year to qualify for a Roth. and the benefit basically is the likelihood that your tax status is going to go up in the future. So you'll probably be in a higher tax bracket than you are right now. Um, so if you have a Roth, then you're getting taxed at your current rate. So when you're an old person, hopefully um, you won't be paying those taxes when you take it out and in a traditional you will pay taxes at the end. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, I'm running into a unique situation where for the first time, and it's a good position to be in, I no longer qualify for my Roth IRA. So I have to look into converting it into a traditional, but it's just some logistics again that you have to deal with. But it doesn't mean that the money that I earned in my Roth earlier is lost or anything. I just have to kind of figure out, the specific tax ramifications of converting it. Yeah, so that kind of covers the basics of an IRA and a 401k. You can have both. I have both. Um, so you do have both for re- uh, retirement vehicles open to you. Um, and they're both... Like nice kind of tax incentives way, tax incentivized ways to save money for retirement. And if you're still with me, I've got a couple more ways to save money for retirement or actually three ways. So one other kind of easy way to save a little more than average um, than you would in your savings account is to consider a CD, which is not what we listened to in the 90s. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm trying, trying
2: to... The kids. You're becoming an accountant as well.
0: Like, <laughs> I'm trying to lighten it up. But okay. So a CD is a certificate of deposit. Um, and it's basically a secure form of time deposit where... You make an agreement with a bank that your money will stay in the bank for this period of time, and they will give you a promised return of interest. So no matter what, you will get your money back and it will earn interest. You just can't access that money in that time period. And usually they're like a year, two years, three years long or so um and they are just always pretty much guaranteed to earn more interest than you would in your typical savings account but maybe not quite as high interest as you might see in the investment market but it's a little bit less risky than the like stock market so it can be a valuable tool to earn a little extra money. And you might see interest rates of like three or four um, percent with a CD. Another investment tool which you have opened to you are investment apps or robo-advisors, which kind of allow you to invest in the stock market. Um, and I would consider these options after you sort of maximize the others, like a 401k or an IRA. Um, just because they're a little more involved and they're a little more risky. Um, So it's something that I really recommend you do your research on before you start kind of playing around in the market. Um, I would read the book that I recommended, Broke Millennial, um, and just really do your research. But what's really cool about some of these apps is that previously we had all kind of thought that you had to be rich to invest. But no, you can really invest small sums regularly and start earning greater interest on them um, just through these apps. Um, One that I use, and I'm not being paid by them, I'm not plugging them specifically, but just because I've kind of... Used it to kind of break into investing as I use the app Stash. So I recommend you check that out. I have friends that have used Robinhood and um, Acorns and Elevest. And there's all kinds of options that are being specifically targeted towards our age group and our demographic. And they are really accessible. Um, really literally are apps that you can download on your phone to get started. So I recommend you can just start small and then kind of get your feet wet and get comfortable before you start investing more heavily into um, the stock market. But it's something to really heavily consider because of kind of the long-term benefit of investing in the stock market. Yes, it's Riskier than these other kind of options I've mentioned, like a CD where you're guaranteed a certain amount of interest or a savings account. But because we're younger, we can kind of, um, weather the storms of the stock market, the ebb and flow, because It's really, the more you kind of look into it, the more you realize the stock market is a roller coaster and it goes up and down. And you just kind of, as young people, we can just kind of wait for it to go back up. um, So you hopefully don't lose your money. Um, I I know a lot of people are very scared of the stock market and they see it like it's gambling, but it's very different. You're not (laughs) placing... Bets like you would at a casino or anything like that. It is you literally investing in a company. Um, and it is most likely that the company, that certain companies are going to be pretty safe to invest in. They've been around for a long time. And a lot of the investment options that are open to us are actually groups of companies built into a fund. So you're actually investing in a large group of companies, so you're not beholden to the risk of one company foundering and losing your money based off of that. It's more like, oh, I'm going to invest in energy companies and energy companies as a whole that some bank or broker somewhere has packaged together for you to invest in. And it's a little bit of a safer investment. Um, I'm starting to get into the nitty gritty details a little bit here. But again, do your research, check out Broke Millennial, check out investing podcasts, Um, check out the show notes. I'll put more information there. But the big takeaway is that investing is not the same as gambling and there are ways to reduce your risk when you invest. Um, And overall, you might or you probably will earn a lot more money and interest from investing than you would by just leaving it in your checking or savings account. The last retirement option is unfortunately something that has kind of started to disappear um, in this day and age, which is a pension. And a pension is basically an account that your employer is contributing money to that is not at all related to Your pay, like it's not being taken out of your paycheck. Um, It might be proportional to your pay, I think, but it's it's extra money that your employer is contributing specifically to your retirement. Um, It's not frequently offered, but luckily, union studios do have or offer a pension. So any studio that's in like the Animation Guild will have access to a pension. Um, It's something that you might have to put in a few years at a studio to qualify for, but it's going to vary depending on where you're working. Relating to this topic, I wanted to say and acknowledge again that I am not a financial advisor. I am not at all like highly trained in this area. I'm just kind of giving the knowledge that I have learned recently through doing my research online and in books. But I do want to make time to say that financial advisors aren't just for rich people. There are financial advisors out there who specialize in younger people, who specialize in graduate students, who specialize in freelancers, Um, and they are not that expensive and they're probably worth (laughs) looking into if you're someone who really struggles with money or has a lot of questions about your financial situation. You might just pay a one-time consulting fee to get your questions answered. And how you can find a great financial advisor is there's a really awesome website called uh, xyplanningnetwork.com. Again, I'll put this in the show notes, but that website's really awesome. You can put in specific search criteria to find a financial advisor that's a good fit for you, again, if you're a grad student, if you're a freelancer, um, anything like that. They might even specialize in disciplines, like if you're a doctor or a lawyer. um, And yeah, look into it. It really might not be as expensive as you think, and you might earn so much knowledge that it's entirely worth it. The last topic is probably the least sexy of all these very sexy money topics. Um, and it's taxes. Basically, once you start earning money, you are going to have to pay taxes. Um, you have to do your taxes once a year. The deadline, I think, is always April 1st. Yeah. Um, you'll typically get your W-2 from your employer. Um, or is it W-9 if you're freelancing? Freelance. Yeah. Um, typically, you get it at the end of the year um, like in December, January, or the year has to end before you get it. So maybe you get it January-ish. Um, and then you can file it anytime between then and April 1st. Um, there are really awesome online services you can use that help you along the way for a small fee like TurboTax, or you can meet with an accountant. Um, and it will be a little more expensive, but if you have like Really, if you have a very unique tax situation and you don't really have the time or energy to navigate uh, filing your taxes, I think an accountant can be a really good option. Um, and generally, yeah, you just you have to do your taxes. It's kind of a drag, but you just have to do it once a year. Um, and there are resources out there to help you get through it, help you maximize your benefit and your tax return. Um, Yeah, that's kind of it when it comes to taxes. Oh, one more thing with taxes, you will see them taken out of your paycheck. So keep that in mind when you're considering your hourly rate or desired salary. You will see taxes taken out and it is going to be more than you expected Unless you're Um,
1: freelancing and you'll be surprised later when you have you owe those taxes.
0: That's right. Yeah. Freelancing your taxes will be taken out when you file your taxes. So definitely keep that in mind if you're a freelancer. So yeah, real sexy. Uh, (laughs) very
1: useful and important information yeah
0: um and that brings me to the end of money 101 thank you so much (laughs) for listening i know that's a lot of very dry information maybe this maybe i just put you all to sleep and you're enjoying a nice nice rest But I hope that this at least kind of whets your appetite to look more into your specific financial situation. Again, my biggest tip, and this is the easiest thing that you can do, is find a savings account with a higher APY annual percentage yield. It is so easy. I had a big account for like 10 years that got me 0.01% interest, and I probably earned 30 cents from it. And then I switched to an account with like 2% interest and I've already made hundreds off of it. Like it's just such an easy thing to do. So at least if you're going to take one piece of advice, go on the internet right now and search savings accounts with the highest APY and you'll find a wealth of options available to you to earn more money on your savings. And that is such an easy and safe way to earn a little extra money so yeah thanks for listening guys thanks Garrett and Ben for bearing with me and uh let us know if you guys have more questions I'm not a financial expert but maybe I'll have experience that I can help with